You know, I find the days after a holiday or a celebration like Easter uh, to be a little depressing. Are, are you with me on that? You have a great Christmas, let's say you get together with all your family, and for me, it's always all the kids come together, so I get to see my kids and my grandkids, and it's just an intense, fun time. And then you kind of go into the day after or two or week after, and I call those the so what now days. Now what do I do? The celebration's all over. Now is it back to life as normal? And you've seen the Charlie Brown thing up here. I feel like Charlie Brown. He always has these high expectations for Christmas, and you always hear him go, rats, right? That didn't turn out that well. And uh, I have great celebrations, but then the day after, I feel like Charlie Brown on the day of. <laughs> rats. Now, now what? And I'm going to talk on the now what moment with you. Uh, that's the theme of our message this morning. Last week uh, for Easter service, of course, we looked at and celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We did so by looking at the proofs for the resurrection. And I pray that for some of you, your faith was built up last week because we don't have a blind faith, those of us who follow Christ. We have a lot of proofs and a lot of evidence that should instill in us uh, faith. Um, and I hope your, your, your level of faith was raised last week if you were present. Um, so we're now in the now what moment time frame after Easter. Do we just go back to the routine of life? I, I pray not. Because if Jesus be raised from the dead, which he was. If Jesus be who he said he is, which he is, he is God incarnate, God amongst his people, God who paid the price for the waywardness of humanity, then we can never return to, quote, normal life, whatever that means. We never return back to life as is. Um, Easter for you and I isn't just a day to celebrate. It's a day that really changes everything. Would you agree with me on that? The resurrection changes everything. So even though we have an annual celebration of it, which is okay and good to do, we ought to understand it's much deeper and richer than that. It's a day that changed all of humanity. So in this last message of this little mini-series from Easter for three weeks, I want to talk with you on the importance of keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus. The importance of dealing with the so now what moment in such a way where it's all about keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus. In fact, our big thought this morning is simply this. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Now, I think a little fixation in this regard is a good thing. Fixation means I just maintain a visual gauge or, or gaze on something. Spiritually, it means I'm keeping Jesus in view at all times. I'm fixated on him. Um, do you ever fixate on anything? Anybody here ever fixate on anything? I'm just curious. I have a little bit of a fixation problem. I'm going to admit it. I can get fixated on something to the point where it's a little bit out of balance. I have that issue in my life. People tend to fixate on sports or exercise or diet. They might fixate on another human being. Um, might be fixated on a spouse or, or a girlfriend or a boyfriend. You might fixate on your children. Oftentimes people live their life almost vicariously through their kids and they're so fixated on them. I don't even know if that's healthy, but you get the idea of what I'm talking about. We, we, we humans tend to fixate. We do. We tend to be fixated on something. Um, my daughter has an iRobot vacuum cleaner, or a Roomba, you get familiar with those? They, they, they have the little programming where they just automatically vacuum clean the house. She has a cat. He hates that robot. 
that vacuum cleaner. He does not like that vacuum cleaner. I enjoy watching the vacuum cleaner fire up and start doing his thing to see the cat's reaction. The cat is very wary of the robot. I think he thinks that vacuum cleaner is going to get him. He watches that vacuum cleaner the whole time. He is fixated on that thing. It occupies his mind. It's on the forefront of his thinking. You can just see that poor cat is terrified of the little Roomba. And I, I kind of think that's funny. But then again, I don't know if you, if you really love cats. Maybe you don't think that's so funny. I don't know. But he is definitely occupied by the Roomba. Now listen, when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, some of those phrases ought to describe us. He had to occupy our mind. He had to be on the forefront of our thinking. We had to be looking at him, looking for him, looking to see what he's up to. Amen? That's what it means to be fixated on Jesus, to have your eyes fixed on him. This is what you do on this so now what moment after Easter. You fix your eyes on Jesus, the perfecter of your faith. You know, after all, he is all he said he was. He is majestic right now. All of heaven is worshiping Jesus Christ. He is the delight of heaven. Amen? He's the centerpiece, the two centerpiece of history. He's majestic and holy. He's dazzling in appearance. He's beyond description. We really can't describe him. And if you begin to see Christ correctly, what happens? Don't your eyes go to him? Doesn't your gaze get fixed on him? Aren't you fixated on him? We're to fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's read about this in in, in Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. Listen to what it says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Now contained in this short section of scripture, I think are some key ways that will aid us in fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ. We're just going to look at those for a few moments this Sunday after Easter. On this Sunday, when you kind of go, so now what? We're going to look at how to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ using Hebrews chapter 12. First of all, the cloud of witnesses focuses your eyes on Jesus. The cloud of witnesses focuses your eyes on Jesus. Now, in the previous chapter of Hebrews chapter 11, to the one I read from this morning, which is sometimes called, by the way, the Hall of Fame of the Faithful, there's this long listing of all these folk who have gone before us who rather die than deny Jesus Christ. All these faithful ones are listed there to instill into us this idea that we can live our life with eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. Now, the word witness used in Hebrews chapter 12 is derived from this original Greek word that's also translated martyr. So when Hebrews 12 says, you have this cloud of witnesses around that, that surround you, it's saying also you have this cloud of martyrs, these ones who rather die than deny Jesus Christ, who have gone before you. They testify to you and I that we ought to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, and that, 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 you know, 
uh, you can do it and all that kind of stuff. They rather die than deny Jesus Christ. Hebrew 11 says some were tortured, some were imprisoned, some were stoned, some put to death by the sword, some saw in two, some put in animal skins and mistreated. And others like Abraham, that ancient patriarch who's described in Hebrews 11, uh, were told he had received all these promises of God, but yet when he passed from this earth, he had not seen them all fulfilled, yet he died a faithful one. He died trusting that God would do what God told him he would do and that God would fulfill his promises. Such ones as these need to become our heroes. The ones that we imitate, the ones that we look to, because when we look to them, our gaze will go to Jesus Christ. When I was a young man, fifth, sixth grade, just beginning to play basketball, I love basketball. It, it grabbed a hold of my um, attention when I was a very young man. I began to really learn how to play some of the fundamentals of the game by watching the NBA at the time. And one of my favorite players to watch was JoJo White of the Boston Celtics. I'm really dating myself. This is a long time ago. And this guy had one of the most animated jump shots I've ever seen in my life. And he's, so he'd go into his jump, go up, and it was like he stopped at the peak of his jump and then Flip the ball. It was just a really beautiful shot to, to watch. Now, it helps if you can jump 40 inches because you do look more animated when you're that high in the air. But I remember as a young basketball player, I practiced for hours in the driveway to have a jump shot like JoJo White. In fact, it became like JoJo White's. It was, I modeled after him because I just, I just was impressed with how he shot the ball. Get this. Please hear this this morning. We're supposed to look at these cloud of witnesses in the Bible, these ones who have gone before us, and they're supposed to become heroes to us. Somebody in the Bible should speak to your heart, and you should begin to say, I want to be like that person. And as you're like that person, your eyes are going to go towards Jesus Christ because that's where their eyes were fixed on, God. So you look at these ancient ones like, say, Joshua and Caleb of the Old Testament, and they were sent out by Moses, the great leader of ancient Israel, to explore, out to, to explore the, the promised land. And they, they were two of the 12 that were sent out that came back with a positive report. And they always strike my heart as faithful ones. And they came back and they said to the assembly, we can do it. We can do what God wants us to do. Let's go, man. Let's go for this thing. And the rest were saying, no, no, no. And they were afraid. And they were talking about looking like grasshoppers and all that kind of thing. But these two were faithful men that said, we can do it. And they're heroes. And when you look at their lives and you begin to imitate their lives, then you're going to say, in God, we can do it. And your gaze is going to fix on Jesus Christ. One of my Bible heroes is Esther of the Old Testament. I, I love Esther. I mean, she is, she's heroic in her stand she took. And she was a Jewess. And she was... Uh, given a marriage to uh, their captors at the time. So she was married to a foreign king, and that would be awkward and, and strange to have your captors, uh, you be raised up as a queen uh, in, this, in this realm. But at one point, uh, somebody in that, that realm decided that we ought to just wipe out all the Jews. They were really proposing genocide of the Jews. And Mordecai, her cousin, knew all about this, and he goes to Queen Esther, and he says, you've got to say something to the king. And he goes, who knows, but maybe you're raised up for just as, such a time as this. And that has become one of my favorite sayings. We live in 
such a time as this. We have been raised up for such a time as this. Listen, people of God, that's not just unique to Esther. That's you and me too. We have been put into this time period on purpose for such a time as this. And that question has to be asked by us, God, what do you want me to do in this time that you've put me into? Well, Esther was faced with a dilemma because if she went into the king unannounced and uninvited and, and uh, he was not pleased with her, she could be put to death. And so she struggles with this in the book of Esther a little bit, but eventually she says, yes, I'm going to go to the king. And she says, pray for me. And then she says these words, and this is why she's my hero. She says, if I perish, I perish. That was courageous. I don't think we understand how courageous he was to go before this king who was really a despot ruler that wasn't of her nationality, and she really wasn't queen because she wanted to be queen. It just kind of happened to her. She's willing to go before this king and make this appeal for her people, and she says, if I die, I die. But I'm going to do this thing because I've been raised up for such a time as this. When we look at people like this, they turn our eyes to Jesus, right? The pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. And that's what the cloud of witnesses is supposed to do for you and I. Do you have one? Do you have one in the Old Testament? Do you have one in the New Testament that does that to you? Do you have one that's currently alive? A friend, uh, someone that's gone before you, that you go, wow, when I think of that person, my eyes go to Christ. That's the ministry of the cloud of witnesses. They turn our eyes to Jesus Christ. Now, if we want to be fixated on, on, on the Lord Jesus this is point number two. We've got to throw off hindrances. We've got to just throw off hindrances because um, they distract your focus. They distract your focus. The idea kind of being painted here, the idea kind of being portrayed here is that of a runner getting ready for a race and stripping off the warm-ups so they can run unencumbered the race marked out before them. I had two sons that ran cross-country. Ah, it's a crazy sport. I don't know why you do that sport. To me, if there's no ball involved, I don't want to be in the sport. How about you? And that's just kind of me. I need some activity to keep my mind occupied from the hardness of running. I hate running. Running you do to do the other things that are fun. My boys both ran cross country, and I always was amazed at the sport. I just thought, ugh, this is a brutal sport. And I, I remember watching them, especially when they get into the latter months of, of fall, end of October, November, when it got cold, they'd all have their big warm-ups on, they were warming up, and then they'd get to the line, and all of a sudden, the clothes would just fly off. It was almost funny. All these clothes would fly off as they got ready to run the race, and then they were in those little obscene cross-country shorts that were shorter than the stuff I wore in 1976 when I played basketball. They were like here, and I go, oh, all that thigh, that is so ugly. At any rate, you know, and then they would be ready, and they would run the race. There was nothing wrong with the warm-ups. There's nothing wrong with this clothing other than its weightiness. It's an encumbrance, and you've got to get rid of that to run that race as effectively as possible. That's what is being talked about in Hebrews. We're supposed to throw, we're supposed to shed all this stuff that's irrelevant in our life, the stuff that so easily distracts us, the stuff that so easily just weights us down. Just get rid of it. As I talked about a few weeks ago in 1 Corinthians um, uh, 10, chapter, uh, verses 23 to 24, uh, it says this, everything is permissible for me, 
but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Not everything is constructive. And, and what's being said in these kind of scriptures is, listen, if you want to have fixated eyes on Jesus Christ, you've got to shed some things usually in your life. You've just got to get rid of those things that maybe aren't necessarily sinful or wrong, but they're an encumbrance to your running the race effectively. You're simply weighted down by small things. Any of you ever traveled to the Black Hills? Yeah, a lot of you go to Black Hills. I mean, this, when you think of South Dakota, really, it's the Black Hills. The rest of us are just supporting the Black Hills. I saw this T-shirt the other day. I think it was at Trends. It was hilarious. You had the river, and it's got Black Hills, and then the rest of us. All the other towns, are major towns, you realize in South Dakota are on this side of the river, and then you've got Black Hills. I mean, this custard, those, those places don't count. Anyway, but you follow what I'm saying. But on the Black Hills, you'll notice something here. I think we have a picture of it. Um, a lot of the pine trees are dying. I've been noticing this for years. Um, I, I, I just read an article about this the other day. Listen to what it says. Visitors to and residents of the Black Hills cannot help but notice thousands of dead trees as they travel the scenic roads and visit area attractions. They are witnessing the mountain pine beetle at work. This naturally occurring voracious Rice kernel-sized insect is killing the ponderosa and other pines throughout the west and the Black Hills of South Dakota and Wyoming. So you get this little teeny rice-sized beetle doing all that damage. A small thing doing a tremendous amount of damage. And I, I think the message I'm trying to say to you and I this morning using this illustration is that small things matter an awful lot. Maybe a lot more than we recognize. And and these hindrances that we're to throw off, they're often small matters. And they may not seem consequential, but they're weighting us down. They're distracting. And they're, they're oftentimes focusing us in on the irrelevant way, way too much. And really, I think what God wants us to begin to do is to just give them access to all of our life. This is a reflection a part of this point. Is, is you, you want to give Jesus access to all your life. And oftentimes, you know what, there's so much of our life we're just living in this mundane way and we're not really thinking about the fact that Christ should be involved with what we're doing. And, and basically what we want to do is begin to give him these small, seemingly insignificant parts of our life. We need to give him access to work in the way we do the mundane of the life, how we do grocery shopping, how we do chores around the house, how we mow the yard, how we greet our neighbors, whatever it may be. They may seem like just little things to us, but they're kind of destructive if we don't do them correctly. You follow what I'm saying? And they can lead to more destruction than you realize. And simply the, the solution is giving Christ access. Just give them access. Think about them. Let them occupy your mind and how you're doing that thing. Begin to have them on the forefront of your thought process. Then this next point, this is really incredibly important. Um, this one's a little more obvious. You've got to throw off the sin that so easily entangles because it just disrupts your focus. It just takes your eyes off Jesus Christ. This is referring to sin that you personally struggle with, sin that would trip you up as an individual. You've got to get untangled from that. Um, the world watched in dismay a few years ago when ex on, on Valdez, um, uh, Valdez, excuse me, dumped most of its load of crude oil into the Prince William Sound in Alaska. Much of the shoreline of Alaska began to look like that. Do you remember that, some of you? It was horrific to see some of the pictures of what that uh, crude oil spill did to the environment. However, the nightly news uh, caught my attention. It, it, just, it said this. It reported that America, American do-it-yourselfers annually dumped 
193 million gallons of motor oil into storm drains and back alleys at that time. That was over 15 times the amount of oil spilled by Exxon Valdez. Did you hear what I just said? That was horrific, and everybody looked at it and went, but at the same time that's going on, you got all these do-it-yourselfers changing their motor oil, and they're dumping it down sewer drains or in the back alley. So they're polluting 15 times more than that. I, I think we've been educated since in that you shouldn't dump motor oil down sewer drains, right? It, there's all these recycling places. I mean, if you do it yourself and you change your oil, just bring it to Walmart. It's super easy to do that kind of thing. But here's, here's what happened then. I think it still happens now to us. It's easy to look at somebody else's wrongdoing, sin, and go, whoa, that's bad. And at the same time, you're doing something too. But it's not on the scale in your mind, right? It's smaller on your mind, so you overlook your personal sin, so to speak, and you look at the sin of others and go, bad, 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 and you don't see your own mishaps and sin that you're participating in. And the Hebrew verses that we read this morning are simply saying to you and I, admit what you're doing and quit it. Address the sin. Throw it off because it is such a disruptive thing in your, in your life. Chuck Swindoll, well-known radio preacher and author, said this, People occasionally ask me what they should do when convicted of sin. The answer is simple. Make plans to stop it. I like that advice. Willfully decide to eliminate the wrongdoing right now. You cannot gradually stop sinning. Sometimes as a follower of God, we just have to admit it and quit it. And that's been a saying of mine for a couple decades now as a pastor. When it comes to sin, just admit it and just quit it. Admit it and quit it. Don't rationalize it away. Don't compare it to other people and say, I'm not doing as bad as they are. Admit it and just quit it. That's the best thing for your life. So with this said thus far in this message, get this picture now. So you're running a race, right? You've got this cloud of witnesses that have run races like yours and saying, you can do it. You can do this. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. You get up to the starting line. You shed off the irrelevant. These things that weigh you down, they're not necessarily sin. They're just irrelevant. They just distract you. They take your eyes off Jesus. You shed that. Now, if you have some sin going on in your life, that's like a ball and chain around one of your legs. You're not going to run with that thing on, are you? Every time you try to run, it's just going to just stop you. So you've got to address sin in your life. You've got to just admit it. And you got to quit it. But now get this, get this. Please hear what I'm about to say. This is so important. You have a race you are to run. You are to run. Not somebody else's race. We don't all run the same race. Our races of life are going to be entirely different. God has a particular race marked out for each person in this sanctuary today. Don't compare your race to somebody else's. Don't say, my race is harder than your race. Because God graces us to run the race he's marked out for us individually. He hasn't graced me to run your race, and he hasn't graced you to run my race. He has graced me to run my race, and he's graced you to run your race. Amen? But we each have a race to run, and we're supposed to run that race. And this brings us to point four. If you want to have a fixation on Jesus Christ that's super healthy, keep your eyes on your race. And run that race with grit. Run that race with grit. Racing involves 
perseverance. Due to some of my health issues that I have faced recently, I exercise six times a week. I do a lot of running. I hate to run. Anybody like to run in here? If you like to run, raise your hand. I'm just curious about you sadistic people. Yeah, I have tried all my life to try to like running. I just don't like it. So I wear my earplugs and turn on my iPod really loud, hoping that that drowned out the misery I'm going through. Or I plug into a TV set and watch the TV show and pray, God, let me be distracted for the next 45 minutes. You know what I mean? Or whatever. But I, 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 my boys like to run. My daughters like to run. I don't understand that. I like to rollerblade because you go fast. And it's pretty effortless. And I, I like to play anything associated with a bat or a ball or a racket or a run. But just running is tough for me. It takes grittiness. Every day I go, I got to do this. I'm going to grit it out. It's good for me, right? You know what I'm saying? It just takes a lot of grit. I like the word grit here when it comes to running our race before the Lord Jesus Christ because it means a similar thing to, to perseverance, but grit just sounds good. It's guttural. You go, kind of grit. You kind of grind your teeth together just a little bit. Um, and that's part of the call uh, that God has placed on us and how to do this thing called life well in him. You gotta do it with some grit. You gotta persevere. Grit says, I'm not gonna quit because I love the Lord Jesus Christ and my eyes are fixed on him. Grit says this, when the going gets tough, I'm going to keep going because greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. I have this focus, this, 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 this zoomed in kind of uh, watching of Jesus Christ. I just like the word grit. It, it just means I'm going to endure difficulties because I want to complete what God has laid out before me. God calls you and I to be gritty people. Amen. You can use the word perseverance if you like that word better. It's okay. I just like the word grit. So here's a reflection question for you. How's your grit today? How's your grit? Because God is calling us to be gritty. doesn't mean I do it on my own. It doesn't mean I pull myself up on my bootstraps. I don't know. No, no. A thousand times no. It means I'm totally relying on the Holy Spirit, but I am really relying on him. I'm gritty in my reliance on him, okay? Are you getting how this works? We're calling people grit. Let's go to our conclusion this morning. Consider how Jesus endured his cross, and with your eyes fixed on him, take up your cross then and follow him. Now, Jesus had a definite race to run that none of us are ever going to run. Would you agree with me on that? He was called to go to the cross and die for our sins. People oftentimes wear crosses around their necks as jewelry. I uh, have no problem with you doing that. It, just, uh, it was an implement of torture and death in the Roman culture. It was, it was designed to cause pain. So if you were crucified, they would drive the nails to your wrists and to your feet, right? And you're on the cross. So what happens as you're crucified is your blood thickens up. It doesn't pump as well. Your chest fills up with fluid and you, it begins to be really difficult to breathe. So you know what you have to do? You have to do this. And what are you pushing on when you're doing that? The wounds in your wrists and your feet and the pain would be searing pain. It was designed on purpose to be a painful death. I think I have a small smidgen of what that feels like now. After having this surgery I went through, uh, where they put some stents in me, they, they do it through your wrist. So they insert this tube right here to be able to feed this wire in and out of you, right? Well, in my particular case, there was a lot of pain after I got done with the surgery in my arm. I didn't understand what it was, so I called them up and said, what's going on? My arm is just killing me. It's just like it's on fire. And, and they said, 
oh, we probably nicked your nerve. We do that every now and then because it's a blind stick. We probably nicked that nerve in your wrist a little bit. And I said, so it's just pain. Yeah. And they asked, does it hurt a lot? Yeah. Like every 15 minutes I wake up at night. I roll over. It just it feels like, I don't know if, how to describe it. It goes right up your elbow into your arm. I mean, it's just searing pain. So I said, well, how long will it last? Well, anywhere from six weeks to three months. I said, but it is just pain, right? Yeah. Okay, I can deal with pain. But I tell you what, I begin to think about this. Where do they put that nail? Right by that nerve. Can you imagine the pain? I mean, I, a little bit now, I imagine that wasn't just a little bit of pain. When I would have that pain, I'd go, ha, 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 ha. okay, it'll go away. Because it would kind of come in a convulsive kind of way, and then it would go away. You follow what I'm saying? I can't imagine being on a cross going, ah, ah. you know, it just had to be searing pain. That was the race Jesus was called to run. That's not the race you and I are called to run. That's not the cross you and I are called to bear. That was the, Christ, the cross that Christ was called to bear. Recently, I, I read, well, years ago, I read about some people who were being crucified so they could relate to Jesus Christ. No, no, we're not called to do that. They weren't crucified to the death. They were crucified just to experience the pain. We're not called to do that. Are you relieved to hear that? When Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me, he's talking about denying yourself. He says in Luke chapter 9, the following words. It's verses 23 to 24. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What he's saying here with this language of take up your cross and find me, follow me, he's saying you had to die to yourself, and I have a particular, a particular race for you to run, a particular cross for you to bear, a particular uh, life for you to live. And he's not saying we have to be crucified. What we have to do is deny ourselves, die to ourselves, see ourselves as dead daily, follow Christ's plan for your life. That's what he's calling you and I to do. We have to run the race he's marked out for each one of us to run. So the Lord's telling us that we have a particular race to run. And it'll involve dying to yourself. Amen? You getting what I'm saying here? You understanding this? And you're not running the race I'm running, and I'm not running the race you're running. You're not running the race your husband's running or your wife's running. You're running the race that God has marked out for you to run. And that will involve dying to yourself and being willing to follow Christ with some grit. So get this. This is, this is what's laid out before you. This is what I'm talking about. God has a race for you to run. Get on the line, run that race. There's a cloud of witnesses around you saying, we run our race, you can do it. Through the grace of God, you can do this thing. Keep your eyes fixed on him. Whatever sin is there, admit it and quit it. Get it out of the way, because it'll take your eyes right off Jesus Christ. It'll disrupt you. Whatever hinders you, whatever's irrelevant that's dominating your view, that's taking your eyes off of Jesus, Address that, shed it, get rid of that weightiness. Get on that line and run that race with everything you have and pray to God to give you greediness of the Holy Spirit to run that race, amen? Keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus. So what do you do the week after Easter? What I just described to you. It becomes the life we live as a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus, we're told, endured the cross for the joy set before him. It wasn't the joy of the cross that he endured it was the joy of you and me. I'm looking at his joy right now. That's why he endured that cross. It wasn't that he looked at the cross and said, oh, I get to have some joy here. No, he looked beyond that cross, the joy that would result from it. To not be born again in him, amen? To us becoming beloved children of God. You and I are called to run this race too. 
marked out for us. And sometimes it's hard, but we're to understand there's a joy of being in God's will and running the race he's marked out for us. That's, that supersedes, that's greater than anything that we face in life. So I want to encourage you this morning. What do you do this week after Easter? Fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of your faith. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Whatever happens, fix your eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this wonderful scripture of Hebrews. Thank you for the many who have gone before us, these saints, these faithful ones that are talked about in scripture, ones like Caleb and Joshua and Esther, Abraham. The list could go on and on and on, Lord. I just pray that such ones would encourage us in our faith. But I pray for everyone here this morning that we'd run the race marked off for us, that we would be willing to pick up our cross, die to ourselves, run that race with perseverance, with grit, admitting sin, quitting sin, shedding hindrances, running as freely as possible in you, Lord Jesus. I pray that your Holy Spirit would do this in us. Grace us to be these kind of people here at Grace Point. We love you, Jesus. I pray that the people here are anointed of your Holy Spirit this morning, feeling your presence. In your name, I pray all these things. And God's people said, 